It's great to see all of you here. Uh, I want to uh, just give a special thanks to uh, all of you who are serving and volunteering. We had a great group of people show up this morning, and I was just looking at all of them, just going, what an amazing team. So can you guys thank me? Join me in thanking our volunteers. Don't thank me. Thank them. Wow, a little Freudian slip there, huh? Okay, so there's some themes in my week, and maybe you've had this happen to you too, where you've heard something a couple of different times, just in the space of one week, and you're going, what, what is going on? Like, why do I keep hearing about this? No kidding. In the space of this week, I heard three different times about this. I heard th- like three different people on three different occasions tell me, this is how you should warm up before you do a workout. <laughs> so everybody, put your arms out. Don't knock the person next to you, right? And just, you know, do a little arm circles. We're going to warm up our core a little bit. Three different times I heard this this week. And I'm like, God, are you trying to tell me like I need to do better here? Okay, I want to hear this. Another theme that I heard this week that will come up three different times in our sermon today was uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. I heard some great stories that all just happened to originate there. And so those are going to come into the teaching time today. We've got new family here with some roots in the Bay Area. So you guys will get to jump right into this. The biggest theme of all that we have been hearing about from the scriptures, from the book of Romans, as we've been studying it this fall, is the theme of grace. It is the power of God's grace to transform human beings into who we're meant to be. Grace is the unmerited favor of God, the gift that just generously keeps giving and giving and giving. Last week, we talked about Romans 5, how there's this great phrase in there, the gift is not like the trespass. The phrase we used last week was the gift is vastly superior to any sins, any brokenness that we may come up with. And we kind of had a little call and response, remember? So I said, the gift is vastly superior to our brokenness. And I said to you guys, how superior? And you said, vastly. Can we do it again? Vastly superior to our brokenness. This is the good news of grace. But how do we remember that when it's 11 o'clock on a Tuesday and you're in a meeting that is just stressing you out? How do you remember that when you pick up your kid from school and they're just, their face is just ashen? They've just had the worst day. How do you enter back into grace after Sunday morning, when Monday morning hits, when you've got to take kids to school, when you have projects at work, when you and your own studies, you're facing a huge deadline? How does grace impact us in those moments? And Paul sort of prompts this question in the text today. He says it a couple of different times in Romans 6. Does grace give us the freedom to do whatever? Like, it doesn't matter how you face your test. It doesn't matter how you face the big thing at work. You've got grace, so you're okay. You can kind of do whatever you want. The ends justify the means. Emphatically, throughout Romans 6, and really throughout his witness, he says, no, 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 no. That misses the purpose of grace. Grace means we have a choice. We have a choice. And the text is giving us two choices today. If you're kind of a binary thinker, if you like coding zero or one, this sermon is for you. Option A and option B are clear in the text. And I want to make this clear from the outset. Paul is writing to believers. He's writing to people in a church in the city of Rome. And so if you follow Jesus Christ, this framework does work in your life. If you are not yet following him, I want you to kind of look at this and go, okay, Would that be helpful to me in my decision-making? Would this aid and assist me in the kind of life that I want to live? Because it is one of the gifts of being able to follow Jesus Christ, is that sometimes our choices are abundantly clear. And we have two choices outlined in the text today. I'm going to call them option A and option B throughout our time together this morning. So there's an outline in your bulletin if you want to look at that. Option A, I kind of retitled um, Deterioration. 
And option B, we titled Transformation, Deterioration and Transformation. And if you want to kind of see where this is coming from, you can just skip right to the very end of Romans chapter 6, very famous verse. It says, the wages of sin is death. That is deterioration. That is falling apart. Option A. Option B is the second part of that. And the free gift of God, the grace of God, is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And for so many of us, the way we were raised thinking about eternal life, if you grew up around church, was that's the ticket you punch when you get to heaven, right? But as we know, when we look at the New Testament, there has to be more. There has to be an impact in how we live our lives now. So when we talk about eternal life today, when we talk about salvation, we are talking about a one-time event, and we are talking about a lifetime spent in servitude, in apprenticeship to the one who gives that to us. That's sanctification. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's start with deterioration. Where do we see this in the text? This is part one. This is the major theme of Romans 1 through 3. So if you want to go back and read those, it is all about the sickness and the pervasiveness of sin and brokenness in our world. It's real. It is absolutely real. And I know so many of you, and I know your stories, but I'm also thinking that we need to be better and better equipped to present this reality to our world, that when our coworkers are distressed about how things are just unraveling for them in their lives, or when you read yet another distressing headline, whatever perspective you may have on it, we know that all of those things in some way, shape, or form fall into the category of this is brokenness. This is how our world is working, even though it's not working right. This is sin. The wages of sin is death. Everything that we do, even the good things that we do as human beings, is sort of tainted and colored by this. And so when we look at these two choices, right, we're talking about option A or option B, nobody looks at option A, deterioration, and goes, I'll take that. I would love to have like a a smattering, a very healthy pile of falling apart. Like, could I please have some more of that? Would you pour that over my life, just like the special sauce? We don't want that, logically, but what do we know about human beings and human behavior? We are so illogical. Like, we, we so do not live in the camp of logic. I read a book a couple of years ago with the title Change or Die. Has anyone read Change or Die? It's a fascinating book about leadership and change. One of the premises in that book is when faced with the reality that if you do not change your behavior, you will lose your business, you will lose your way of life, you might even lose your life around health decisions, around the way you're running your company, statistically, 80% of human beings look at those decisions and go, eh, I'm going to choose to die. I'm going to choose my own way. This guy studied heart patients who were given the news, like, if you don't change your behavior in your diet, you will die. He looked at people trying to operate a factory, saying, if you don't change your business model, you'll die. 80% of the time, people say, eh, I'm just, I'm going to do it. So we do actually invite deterioration, destruction into our lives. And it boggles our minds, especially if we kind of consider ourselves educated people, like, I know how to make good decisions, I got this down. You don't, I don't, we don't. This is a problem. Romans 6, 11, I'm going to use the Phillips translation, which has been really helpful. Joe, Teresa, thanks for the Phillips translation. Really great, so appreciate it. Look upon yourselves, this is Romans 6, 11. Look upon yourselves as dead to the appeal and power of sin, but alive and sensitive to the call of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You're dead to the appeal and power of sin, but you're sensitive, you're alive, you're you're engaged by the call of God through Jesus Christ. I love how Paul puts this because this names something very basic about the reality of sin. It's appealing. 
There's a power, there's an enticement, there is a temptation behind the things that we would identify for ourselves, that the scriptures would identify as sin. As one pastor that I've listened to speak before put it, if you're not having fun when you're sinning, you're not doing it right. There's an inherent thing in sin where we go, sure, I want to do that. Why would I not want to do that? There is an appeal to the way of life that breaks us apart from God's desires. We just have to name that. The scriptures name that. So, Bay Area story number one. We're keeping track of these, right? So there's going to be three of them. Here's round one. Another book. I know, books. Just, you know what to get me for Christmas. Just, there you go. Uh, probably the most engaging book I've read this year so far is Bad Blood. Has anyone heard about this book? It's about Theranos. Has anyone heard of Theranos, the company? Okay, so if you're in tech world, you're probably familiar with this. I was not until I read this book. The story of Theranos is it was a company that started in the San Francisco Bay Area by a young woman named Elizabeth Holmes. She dropped out of Stanford, and she had this vision for being able to revolutionize blood testing. Her claim was their company could take one finger prick of blood, not a vial of blood, not a whole bunch of blood, and run a bazillion tests on that one finger prick of blood. It was going to revolutionize the way that people were able to test for diseases in high-stress environments, and the U.S. military was looking at all these kinds of things. She was a young, visionary CEO, and that community in the Bay Area looked at her and said, wow, you've got talent, you've got potential, you're great, we're going to start giving you lots and lots of money. This revolutionary product was going to change the game, tons of chatter, press releases, made the cover of a couple of big-name magazines. There was a problem. It didn't work. It absolutely didn't work. They couldn't even fake it working. They would go to show their product to investors, and they would actually set up a different screen in front of their device to show the results that they were supposing that they could make. They were being incredibly deceptive in a field that if you are deceptive, people can die. And people got hurt through this technology, through this company. The tech was junk. It never worked. And yet somehow, before word of this got out, through some very careful investigative reporting by the Wall Street Journal, Theranos was valued at $9 billion at one point in their lifespan. $9 billion. In 2015, Time magazine named Elizabeth Holmes one of the most influential people in the world. In 2015, she made the cover of Glamour magazine as the woman of the year. And then word got out. It wasn't working. Despite all the big names, despite all of the big money, it didn't actually amount to a hill of beans. And the whole thing shut down. And if you look her up now, if you look up Theranos now, the company is basically folded. She and some of the people that worked with her are under investigation by the SEC for fraud. And in 2016, Fortune magazine, just a year after she made the cover of Glamour and Time, Fortune magazine named her and that company the most disappointing leaders of 2016. Just like that. What's the point I'm trying to make? There was a temptation there. There was an appeal and a power behind what this company was presenting. And please don't hear me beating up on this particular person leading the company. Please don't hear me beating up on people that invested in this. If you invested in this, sorry. One of the reasons this was so enticing for people is a phrase that has come to dominate so many corners of our culture, not just the Bay Area, but here too. If you don't invest, if you don't get on board, if you don't get in line with this, you're going to miss out. You will miss the rocket ship. She was being compared to the next Steve Jobs. Who wants to miss out on the next Apple? Who wants to miss out on investing this new game-changing technology? Who wants to miss out on Tesla or any of these other things? 
And yet, that's the appeal and power of sin. We don't want to miss out. We don't want to miss this opportunity. Maybe money is not the thing for you. Maybe the thing that draws you in with its power and enticement, maybe it's beauty. Maybe it's being fashionable. Maybe it's achieving physical perfection. Maybe you're an elite athlete. You want to beat the last time that you got. Maybe you want to be the smartest man, the smartest woman in the room. For me, what is enticing to me, what sort of appeals to me in terms of power, actually is just making people happy. Just having people like me. Keeping those plates spinning, trying to keep myself safe. I know I'm being vulnerable sharing this with you guys, but that's the real thing for me. That's where there is appeal and power for me in having people like me. What is it for you? I'm asking because I want us to go think and reflect on that because that is where the power of sin is going to keep drawing us in over and over and over again. The challenge based on this reality is if we are actually dead, if you follow Jesus Christ and it's true, you are dead to the appeal and power of sin, then when you are confronted with the thing that uniquely wants to suck you in, you don't have to do it. You do not have to get on board the rocket ship of Theranos because it's not real. You don't have to go and do these things that are so deeply engaging to some part of you. Whether it's beauty, whether it's power, whatever it is, you can stop. And I've been trying to practice this in my own life. Pause. Take a deep breath. I did this at my bathroom sink the other day. God, what am I really focusing on here? If I'm experiencing temptation, if I feel like I'm being pulled off the roadmap that God has for me, what's really going on? What's the need that I'm really trying not to address, trying to stamp it down, but it's really coming up here? What's really happening? God, how could I honor you through this? How could I seek obedience through this? If I'm dead to the appeal and power of sin, God, make that real. Because option A is we keep getting sucked in to the appeal and power. Option A, if you want to summarize it, it's you believe the hype. You believe the hype about yourself, about your success, about your company. Believe the hype. Believe that Theranos is going to change the game or they're going to lose the game. We've talked often at Bethany over our history about Christian discipleship. The gospel is swimming upstream against the current. Option A is just following the current. So how are we confronting that? How can we better step into that as a church, as a community? That's the challenge of option A. Now let's turn the page for a second, talk about transformation. Option B is this choice that grace gives to us. Sticking with the deterioration of sin, temptation, that's option A. In Jesus Christ, the text tells us we've been given newness of life, new life, a new foundation. What does that look like? It looks like transformation. The word the scriptures use is sanctification. Heather read this for us, but I want to read it again. This is verse 19. And you can hear option A and B in the text. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity. Option A, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for, for the purpose of, for the goal of sanctification. In the original language of the text, sanctification meant moral purity, it meant sanctity, it meant holiness, it meant taking off all the stuff that's just gonna encumber us and break us down and casting it aside. A theological definition is just simply the process by which people become more like Christ. That's sanctification. And the pathway I want to highlight around sanctification is actually one that has been pressed into my life lately, and I know has been pressed into so many of your lives as well, and it's suffering. 
If we go back to Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, there's that great series of exchanges, right? We know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The spark is suffering. What gets the fire started is suffering. The primary vehicle for your sanctification, my sanctification, becoming more like Christ over time is the very thing we all run and hide from. It's suffering. Bay Area story number two. There was a church that started in the Bay Area in 1873 called Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, started by 13 men and women. 15 years later, they were down to 12 men and women, so explosive period of growth. They struggled, they nearly closed, but they kept going. And in 1880, a family came to Menlo Park Press, husband and a wife, and they had waited and waited and waited years and years and years. They tried to have a baby. They couldn't, they tried, they couldn't. Finally, they had a son, and the son was their joy. And during this time, as diseases were kind of rampant, the son got sick, he caught typhoid fever, and as a teenager, later in his life, he passed away suddenly. He died. They lost their son, this precious boy that they'd waited their whole life for. And as a parent of kids that are about 10 years away from being teenagers, I can't even fathom losing my children after this many years of knowing them and shaping them and seeing God build them up. Like, it's just unfathomable to me. And of course, they were devastated. Of course, there was mourning and darkness. They still belonged to this church. They had people, I imagine, walking beside them through this, praying for them, supporting them. And what was the temptation there? What was option A? What would following the current have been? Just to give up, just to let that grief define you. And I know grief is so complicated for so many people, but I think that was the temptation they faced, just to be named as people who are grieving and to kind of just exist, right? But instead, in 1887, they had a vision for a new thing that God wanted them to do. They had a new calling. They weren't going to have more kids. By this time, they were into the age where kids weren't going to happen anymore. And so they decided they were going to start a university. They were going to start a college to honor the memory of their son. And it was going to be a college that welcomed people in from any kind of background. They're going to try to provide for their scholarships as much as they could. They wanted to take care of kids that were their son's age when he died. And so they named the college in his honor, Leland Stanford Junior University. And to this day, that is the legal name of Stanford University. This couple walked through suffering with their church, caring for them, encouraging them, trying to get them through this. And the kind of sanctification that they experienced was not what we might typically expect. It was God calling them into a new thing, a new way of life. That's what the text promises us. Newness of life. Option B. They had a choice. And as recipients of grace, their choice was to lean into the new thing. So if you are going through grief, if you are going through suffering right now, there is grace. And on the other side of this, God may have something for you to do. It may not be starting a world-class university, but it may. It may be doing something remarkable with kids that are experiencing poverty in your kid's school. It may be creating a space for people at your company just to come and be cared for, to pray for them. It may be taking the opportunity to reach out to your neighbor who's just going through a rough time and you're spending time with them. I was emailing with someone from our church this week and their mission right now is just to care for their elderly neighbor who's just in a rough place. If that's all it is, that's all it needs to be, Bethany. 
Because it is God using your suffering, my suffering, our suffering as a community to find a pathway to make his grace alive and active in an incredible way. And that is walking in newness of life because of who Jesus is and because of how great he is in our suffering. And you and I have that seed in us that's going to do something amazing. I know it. So option A, deterioration, believing the hype, $9 billion to Theranos, gone. You don't have to ride that train. You do not have to swim with the current around you. You can swim upstream, which is option B. Transformation, taking your grief, asking Jesus to shape it into something else, taking your stress and your pain and saying, God, you will do something through this. I know you will. You promise you will. So what? And can I be awake and alive for it? For me, option A, I mentioned, is keeping people happy. The image for me is spinning plates, right? Just keeping those plates up in the air. Three years ago, my family and I arrived here, and my option A, what I believed the hype was, is I believe the hype about me. I thought I was great. I thought I had been picked for the best job in the world, and I was going to be the best guy ever at the job. I got this. I know what I'm doing. I've done this work. My skills are enough. And guess where that landed me? Tired, discouraged, filled with a lot of pain. I believed my own hype. That was my option A. And it was so deceptive and so flawed, and it took me so long to kind of peer through the reeds and kind of push past all of this and kind of go, what's really going on here? And when I first landed, I read this incredible quote from C.S. Lewis, where he said, in discipleship, it's not like Jesus looks at you as a field and he's just throwing seed out on the field. What Jesus wants, this is the phrase that I came back to over and over again, is he wants us to be plowed up and re-sown. Right? The image of a plow turning up soil, breaking it apart, the dirt crumbling. He wants us to be plowed up and re-sown. He wanted me to be plowed up and re-sown. And it was through suffering. And I had some great people around me. And I still have great people around me. And I'm very grateful for that. But I needed to be plowed up and re-sown. Do you? Where are you being plowed up and re-sown right now? And if you're in the midst of that, can you join me in saying, Jesus, I thank you in advance for how this suffering is going to bring about your kingdom. I thank you in advance that suffering produces character and perseverance and hope, and these things will happen. I don't see them yet, but they will happen. Because that's option B. The things that God brought me here to do, to be intentional, to preach and to teach, to be with you, to be for you, those are still things that I believe God has called me to do. But I recognize now, more deeply than ever, because I'm in the process of being plowed up and re-sown, I recognize the shadow side of those things. I recognize the darkness that is just under the surface, even in my own gifts. How I can overvalue certain opinions. How I can spend way too much time and energy keeping those plates spinning. How I can be too differential. And how I'm quick to blame myself for things that I observe as failures. And I say all of this, not to you know, just sort of lay out all my dirty laundry, but to say option B is the real deal. And it is the real thing that God has allowed me to live into. And he didn't let me live into it just for me. He let me live into it for us, for our community. And he is letting each of you live into it. Into the suffering, into the change, into the being plowed up and re-sown for something, for someone. Who is it? Who needs to hear your story of being plowed up and re-sown? Or if you're not resonating with that, if that's not where you're at right now, it's coming. Like, just wait. It's coming. And who's going to walk with you through that? We aspire to be a community where people are known, where they're being plowed up and re-sown, where we go, yep, I get it. I'm with you. 
And I look out and so many of you are in small groups and you're experiencing that. If you want to know more about what that vision looks like, come to our foundations class today. Have some lunch. Hang out. We'll talk. It's going to be great. Men, I want to encourage you, especially starting after Thanksgiving, we're going to have some men's breakfast together where we can get into this stuff. We can be honest and support each other because we need it. Because I need it. Because we all need it. That's coming. So a few practical steps as we wrap up. Look for ways to identify where you are being plowed up and re-sown. Where is that happening in your life? When you face temptation, focus in on that thing. Go, what is really going on here? Like, if you can picture that thing, if you can hold that thing out to God, what is it really? Is it power? Is it beauty? Is it acceptance? What is it? Can you name that before God? Remember that option A and option B are a daily choice. It's a moment-by-moment choice. Facing temptation, facing the deconstruction, or facing the transformation that God wants for you, it is a daily choice. And without Jesus Christ, it would be maddening. But with him, we know there is no senseless suffering and there is a purpose in what he has called us into. Remember that it's a daily choice. Be patient. And remember that God has called us to be alive and sensitive to the things that he is doing around us. So Bay Area story number three, last one. Sitting next to a guy yesterday, having coffee, a group of guys that uh, I've been getting to know get together for a workout on Saturday mornings and we all go get coffee together. And this guy I'd never met before sitting next to me telling me he spent 19 years in Silicon Valley, in the Bay Area, worked in all the venture capitals and the big tech companies and all that kind of thing. And the thing that he said to me that just broke my heart, that really stuck out to me, was he said, I spent 19 years there and I had had enough because it is impossible to make meaningful connections in that community. And I went, really? Tell me about that. Like, what did that look like for you? Like, help me understand a little bit. He would try to set up times with people, and they would never get back to him, and they would set up something, and then it'd be really quick, and then they'd have to go off and go back to work and all this kind of thing. There were no margins. And if you're living life right now with no margins, God is with you. Your church is with you. And you need those margins. And so I was just talking with this guy, and I'm going, this is one of my neighbors naming their need for meaningful connection. And I wish I could tell you that we prayed together and he accepted Christ. I wish I could tell you that I took the courage to invite him to come and be with us. What I did do is say, let's get together. Let's try to do something together. Let's see if there's a step A for us becoming friends. Maybe we go hiking together. Maybe we just keep hanging out after these workouts. Who knows? And I want to build up. I'm asking God to build up that courage in me so that I am more inclined to just be bold. And to make that invitation. But the point I'm trying to make is that we must listen carefully for our neighbors when they say, I'm trying to make a meaningful connection. We must be a culture of invitation because this is newness of life. This is what we can invite people into that the scriptures have given to us because it's not just for us, it's for others. And so many of you do this so well already and I'm so thankful for that, for each of you. You're leading me, you're inspiring me to be more of an invitational leader. So how might you and I listen for the people sitting next to us and listen for that call and listen for that cry and can we meet them where they are? I believe we can. And I believe to do that, we will need everything that Jesus wants to offer us in his power and in his grace. And we're going to come now to his table and receive his grace in a special way. So I want to invite the band to come join me up here. And as they come up, I just want to offer a reminder that every week, 
After the sermon, we will have members of our prayer team. They're usually back there by the couches. They're in that general area. And you can just come. There'll be somebody standing there with the lanyard on, and they're just there to pray for you. Whatever you may be going through. Maybe something about option A or option B really resonated. You need to talk about that. Come be with one of the members of our prayer team. The communion servers are going to be up here to serve communion. But before we step into that, uh, would you pray with me? Mighty God, thank you for the word that you want us to hear. Would you hear us as we just take a moment to be silent, to catch our breath, and to prepare for the table? As our kids are learning and growing, we get to come here and receive simple bread and simple juice. But it's so much more than just a simple thing. It is a profound time where we can come and worship you. Where you equip and empower people, not just to go do stuff, but to be the people you long for us to be. That you're sanctifying us and transforming us, and we do not deserve it. But it is the receiving of your grace at this table that we want to pray now is effectual in our hearts and changes us and moves us. So God, set apart this time in these elements. Use them for your glory in these next moments. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.